Welcome everyone to a GDFG holiday special. This will end up being bonus episode number 24 and today we're going to do a patron Q&A. I am your host, Zaccavelli. You can find me on Twitter at underscore Zaccavelli underscore and tune in for Twitch streams, game development streams that is, at twitch.tv slash Zaccavelli underscore. Today we're going to do a patron Q&A. I got all the patrons together and I gave them the opportunity to ask a few questions to kind of customize their own episode with their own topics. And there's some really great discussions in there. Some really long discussions, that's why today's uh, episode is so long. But before we get to those, I just want to make a few quick announcements. I've got bad news and I have good news, so I guess I'll start with the bad news first. Um, Back in November, I was laid off from my job. As many of you know, this year, uh, at, at the beginning of this year, I started my first job at a game studio, game designer, and it was a really awesome experience. But unfortunately, like so many others in the industry this year, uh, I too was laid off. If you've been paying attention to the video game industry this year, it's had this weird juxtaposition of some of the greatest games ever have come out in this year. For consumers, this will go down as one of the best years ever for video games. But when you pull back the curtain and look behind the scenes, this was a bad year for the industry in terms of job security. Many, many people have lost their jobs, and I find myself amongst them. Now, the good news is, is I was pretty prepared for this. I'm lucky enough to have the opportunity to go back to doing indie dev just like I was doing before and make that my full-time job. And even the timing kind of worked out. And I say that because... The big good news is there is now a public Steam page for my current game project, Mirror Throne. I've worked really hard on this game, and I'm really proud of it, and I finally get to show it off to everyone. So yeah, if you just go onto Steam and search for Mirror Throne Auto Battler, you'll find the page. It's a bit of a early Steam page now, but I'm trying out this new, I don't know, marketing calendar or marketing timeline and the idea is get your page up as soon as possible even if some of the art is placeholder and get a demo up and start collecting wish lists so yeah the steam page is up it would mean a lot to me if you went and looked at it and wish listed it building wish list is something that can potentially make or break the game and (laughs) i now find myself in a position where the game needs to do well enough for me to keep going. So yeah, it would mean a lot if you wishlisted it. Um, There will be a demo in early January. So we're fast approaching a time when you'll even be able to play this game. And like I said, it's still early in development, so it's going to be really fun. I'll have a Discord dedicated specifically to the game, and uh, I can get your feedback there, and we'll kind of crowdsource a little bit of feedback from you all. And I think that would be super helpful in making this game the best it can be. So yeah, please go check out my games page. It is called Mirror Throne Auto Battler. You can find it on Steam if you type in Mirror Throne. It'll come up. And here's a little uh, SEO thing I did. If you type in Auto Battler in Steam right now, 
Uh, this is why I put Auto Battler in the title of the game. If you type in Auto Battler, which is a genre of a giant amount of games, uh, Mirror Throne will come up in the top three. I'm actually testing that out, but with everyone I've tested it with, it's come up. So I think my plan worked. Hopefully that'll drive some extra traffic, but yeah, please do go check it out. The last announcement I want to make is that now that I am doing uh, indie dev full time again, that means I'm going to start streaming again in the middle of the day. If you were kind of following the streams before, I was streaming at nights and I'll miss that group of people. The, the issue of moving the stream time is that, well, it doesn't work for everyone, right? So some of those people I won't get to see as much in chat. And that is unfortunate. But for right now, uh, we're going to go back to streaming in the, middle of in the middle of the day, which means some people that I haven't seen in a long time I'll get to see again. And then, uh, yeah, we'll always have weekend streams. And I think most people, I try and pick like the middle of the day. Uh, for me, which makes it available at a reasonable time for most people in the world. So yeah, I'll be announcing the official um, Twitch stream times on our Discord, which is an open community Discord, by the way. I'll have a link for that in the description of this episode. And without further ado, I say we start this episode. So yeah, to start the episode... Uh, not everyone could make the live question and answer times. And I gave the option of a few people to just leave a question in the, uh, we have like a private chat where I have all the patrons and we were planning this. And so I told anyone who couldn't make it that they could just leave a question and I'll read it up at the front of the show. So we have two questions to go through and then I will play for you the sessions that are recorded of all of us discussing live. But let's start with these ones. I haven't looked at them yet, so this could be like a... This is almost like an extreme buff or debuff. But our first question comes from Joe1Guy, or otherwise known as Standing Boomer. They say, based on the experience I had this year, it seems possible to gain a foundational amount of knowledge for game development, such that you'd be able to jump in and out every year or two as a hobbyist. Because game dev has a reputation for being too hard or toxic, which deters a lot of people, including devs, to try it, I'm hoping that in the future a concise curriculum can be put together, which is both inviting and solid, so that it doesn't cut too many corners and provides someone to self-learn at a reasonable rate. Your podcast series is on the right track. It gets to a point but doesn't feel accelerated like a boot camp. Having said that, do you foresee that as a possibility? so that game dev can feel more inviting? If so, what are your thoughts? Maybe five to 10 key areas that need to pick up intuition on. Perhaps let's assume that the person wanting to pick up this hobby already has some programming background. Okay, I kind of see where you're going with this. It's sort of like a, uh, like a, a quick start manual, right? For jumping back into game development. And by the way, there I think there's a lot of people who do it this style, right? They get really invested in game development as a hobby and they work on it for like six to eight months and they maybe they even complete a project. Then they complete the project and they move on to their next hobby. That happens to me even with my own personal hobbies that aren't game development. Uh, I'm kind of in and out of them. Um, like I get really into them and then they kind of go on the back burner for a little bit. And then I find myself coming back to them, getting really into them. And I see what you're saying. Uh, someone who does that with game development, it's possible to build like a foundational amount of knowledge and then you can come back to it 
and you're like, yeah, I remember how to do this and let me build something new. Let me learn a new experience or something like that. And I think you bring up a really interesting idea. This is not something I've thought about. Um, this idea of having like a, a quick start manual or something like that. It's a good thing. <laughs> it's a good thing you didn't ask me this question live because, uh, well, it requires some thought. Let me, let me give it some thought real quick. I think you asked for five to 10 key areas. And I think identifying 10, we'd almost be getting too specific. I think five, if I were to identify five key areas or like things you need to remember when you're coming back. And let's say I wrote a manual, like a book on this. These would be the chapters. Okay. Chapter number one would be planning and scope management. I think no matter what, managing the scope of a project, you are always going to have to do it no matter how good or how inexperienced you are. It's something that at all levels of game development, people have to work on and um, they have to manage it. And I could see someone who maybe stepped away from the hobby for a while coming back and forgetting that or thinking like, yeah, yeah, I remember scope's an issue, but this time I've got a little bit of work in it, but I still get humbled by the scope of my own projects and I do this every single day and I never don't think about it. <laughs> and scope still creeps up on me. So yeah, I think chapter one is going to be, uh, be weary of your scope. Chapter two would come, maybe I should have organized these in my head before. These chapters aren't in a specific order because I'd actually put chapter two before one right now, but it would be uh, the art of prototyping. If you're going to commit yourself to a project for a long time, let's say this is a hobby you come in and out of. And you're like, okay, this is going to be the next game that I go try. Um, chapter two would be build like five really quick prototypes and pick your favorite. That way you know you're spending your time on a hobby that you actually like. Sometimes the idea in your head becomes this Frankenstein monster once you actually build the game and you find it that like you actually come to hate your game. Like you don't want to work on it anymore. It was a stupid idea, but now you're three quarters of the way done and you don't know what to do. A good way to mitigate that, I think, is to think about the core game loop and build just that core game loop and see if you actually like it. See if you can say to yourself, yeah, I could see myself working on this for the next six months. Like, I'm not going to get bored of this. I'm going to finish this one out because I really believe in it. Nothing's worse than you set up everything else and then you build the core game loop. You're already three months into the project. And once you have the core game loop already all done and you just need to polish the game, um, maybe you got two months of work left, but you don't actually like the game because you figured you found out it wasn't fun too late. That's kind of unfortunate. And I think that is another thing that, um, I would tell someone who is maybe coming back into the hobby with some kind of foundational knowledge, I would say, well, if you don't know what you're going to work on yet, why don't you just prototype like five things and see which one feels like the most fun to you? Okay, the third chapter in this hypothetical manual would be titled, Did Somebody Build It First? And I don't mean that like you should stop on a game idea because it already exists. I mean that like 
you don't have to build your own player controller if there's one already on the Unity Asset Store that does everything you want it to do. Or you don't have to make a full environment um, if there are pieces like a modular asset on the internet somewhere that you can pay $50 for and make an infinite amount of scenes. Now, there is something to be said for sometimes the hobby is people like making the things, right? Like you like doing everything yourself. And if that's part of your hobby, then feel free to. But I know a lot of other people, um, they don't have a lot of time to give to game development. It's sort of a, a side hobby. And if you try and build everything yourself with that, you're just you're stretching out your game uh, development cycle super long because you're going to have to make everything. But you can shorten it up a lot if there are a few things that you don't really care about working on and they're already built and you can pay you know, a, a fair price for them. There are so many good assets out there that have already built the building blocks that you need to make your game or your idea. And yeah, I would just go out and, and grab one of those and not be ashamed that you didn't do everything yourself. I know I like to teach the Swiss Army Knife where you can do everything yourself, but that doesn't mean you should. Especially if this is a side hobby for you, focus time on things that you find fun. Do the fun parts and uh, buy the parts that aren't fun. And by the way, uh, if you do it right and you use these assets in a unique and interesting way, then the consumer is not going to care at all. I like to point out that the reason Vampire Survivors has a vampire theme is because the dev bought an asset pack with just vampire monsters and stuff. Those are the assets they had to work with. So, yeah, I think that would be a third chapter in this manual. The fourth chapter in the Quick Start Manual would be the idea of doing art-first game development. I've really come to like this style. I switched it up on my latest game, uh, Mirror Throne. I did an art-first style. I used to gray box everything and then replace the art after, but I actually like the idea of art-first game development. And on a quick start guide, I would have a chapter in there about establishing the look of your game early, maybe even first, because it affects so much. Um, not only does it affect the overall look, uh, which is kind of obvious, but another thing it affects is the amount of workload. Like if you can find a good look for your game that also doesn't require a ton of maintenance or meticulous artwork or something like that, then that is perfect. That is the perfect situation for a hobbyist game developer who might only have like an hour a day to work on their game. If you can find a couple asset packs that maybe look good together or you kind of have a idea for what the art style overall of your game is going to be. Like mine for Mirror Throne is 2D characters in a sort of pixely 3D world. And I think that that art style works really good for me because it allows me to focus on making 2D character art, which I can do and I think it looks nice, but it doesn't require a ton of extra art workflow which adds a lot to the time required to make the game and so for hobbyists especially if you're coming back to it i would say figure out what the game's going to look like first and maybe prioritize something that is i won't say easier but requires less time put in and the last chapter chapter five 
would be um, remember to evoke a feeling with whatever you're designing. I'm going back to the classic golden rule. I just think if you follow the golden rule, which is evoke an emotion, um, then you'll at least have something of a game. You'll at least have a moment and a purpose and a game that does something for someone when they play it, which is kind of the point, I think. It's easy to lose sight of that, especially if you're coming in and out of making games. It's easy to lose the sight of that. And then I could see someone coming back to making games just because they played something that inspired them, uh, but they don't really know why they're making it, and the game just becomes a collection of mechanics that don't really build up to anything. Which reminds me, bonus chapter, I would structure my game design in an MDA framework. I have a whole episode about the MDA framework in the Game Dev Field Guide. It's episode 54 if you want to go check it out. But yeah, if I was coming back to game development from having spending some time away and I kind of forgot how to structure an idea, um, I would combine both the idea of evoking emotions and the MDA framework, and that's how I would plan the design of my game. I think with those steps, if you had a quick start manual and you read those things and you kept those things in mind, I think you'd be off to a good start, barring the fact that you have a foundational knowledge on coding and a little bit of art skill and how to work your engine, all that stuff. Once you had all that stuff and you were coming back to it, I would say remember those five or six things, and I think you'd be started in a good direction. Okay, and then we had one more question uh, that was kind of left in a text format, and the rest were all live. This one comes from Seabass, and Seabass's question is actually very topical. Seabass uh, had a work conflict and couldn't make the live session, so I'll read the message exactly. It'll make sense to you. Sorry, everyone. The real job has been brutal this week. Thanks for still giving me a chance, Zachavelli. I guess my main question would be just that. After meticulously planning and scheduling all of your tasks on a long-term project, how do you adjust for life, your day job, family, etc., which may throw a wrench into the whole thing? This is a very, like, real and raw question that, to be honest with everyone, I'm not sure I have the perfect answer for. And I wish I did because it comes up a lot of times. It comes up in a lot of variations. But essentially, it's like, how do I balance my life and game development? And I think it's a hard question to answer because, one, the answer is different for everyone. It kind of depends on what's going on in your life. I'm in a good position because I don't have anyone counting on me to bring home a paycheck. So I can be really risky and I can do this really unstable thing like game development for a lot of hours in my day and I can take that risk. But if you have a family and they're counting on you to bring home a paycheck, then the amount of time you can spend um, is less, right? Because you could be spending that time working a much more stable job, a much more profitable job. And so the first part of this answer, I guess, is you have to kind of know where that line is for you. And I think it's okay to have that line move around based on what's going on in your life, right? Like uh, during the holiday season in the winter, 
um, everyone's really busy with life stuff and it's kind of natural to have less time for game development. But maybe you have like a slow week in the summer and that line shifts more towards game development. So yeah, I think the answer is really dynamic. Uh, one, it kind of depends on people's life situation and then two, it just depends on the current time you have right now. But beside that, do I have any tips for kind of planning a long-term project? Well, I think having some kind of routine for game development really helps. I know there's an idea that goes around on our Discord that people really love is the idea of no zero days. It's like no matter what, even if you only spend five minutes working on your game, uh, just have no zero days. And if you have to set aside some time, I know some people like to wake up early before work and work on it. Some people work super late at night after they've put their kids to bed. Whenever you pick the time, I think it's good to have a routine time maybe every day or whatever you can squeeze in. Maybe it's only one day a week. On Thursdays at 7 p.m., I'm working on my game for one hour. And the truth is, sooner or later, a wrench will be thrown into it and Thursdays at 7 p.m. will be some kind of emergency and you have to just go do the emergency. And I think that's totally fine. Um, if you're doing games as a hobby, you're trying to get to the end by squeezing in any time that you can here and there. And really, you're trying to enjoy the path <laughs> along the way. I think sometimes that's forgotten. Um, well, maybe not forgotten, but just with the right perspective, you kind of understand that really loving game development is loving the path along the way to the end of the game. Releasing the game is the goal, and it's by far the best part. But if you learn to love the in-between parts, the path on the way there, the grind of it, I think it's like the most healthy way to go about it. And when you look back, a lot of the satisfaction will be like, remember all those times that I squeezed in like 30 minutes just to fix a tiny piece of my code or how I redid that art icon like 50 times uh, getting up early in the morning. And I know that sounds crazy <laughs> right now. That sounds like that is not fun. But I promise when you look back at it, you feel pretty satisfied. I think it's the same feeling. I wouldn't know this, but I think it's the same feeling that people who like do bodybuilding or like get really fit in the gym. I feel like they don't there are probably days that they don't want to go to the gym, but when they look at it at the long term, they're glad they did. And it's not just about the result. It's about, um, I don't know, they just like the process, even though it doesn't necessarily feel good at the time. So yeah, I think a long term routine, even when it may get interrupted here and there, I, I honestly, I don't know if there's anything you can do about the interruptions, but having a long term routine, okay, you missed a day. Uh, just make sure the next day you, you're right back to it, or you maybe you squeeze in some extra time here and there. I think that works for adjusting your life and your priorities. You just have to find that balance and routine that works for you, and then after you do it for like 30 days in a row or something like that, you don't even think about it in the same way that you don't think about brushing your teeth or any other mundane daily tasks you have. So yeah, Seabass, sorry, I don't know if I gave a totally direct answer, and um, that's because I don't know if I have a totally direct answer, but that is the best advice I can give based on what I've seen work for myself and what I've seen work for a lot of people who are in that position in our Discord. Thank you to those patrons who left those questions in the 
secret patron channel, which is really just a behind the scenes of me trying to organize everything. <laughs> you can see how unorganized it is. And yeah, now that we've been through those, I think I should go ahead and play the first session of our live patron Q&A. Welcome everyone to the first session of the patron question and answer. We're going to try and do this as efficient as possible. So I'm going to jump straight into the questions and I'll leave all the intro stuff uh, for, well, the written intro. I guess, Yan, we'll start with you. Everyone, I think, kind of knows Yan in our community and has been a longtime uh, member and kind of the number two. If it wasn't for Yan, I think a lot of our stuff would be uh, out of control. It'd, it'd be left up to my organizational skills, which are perfect. Uh, <laughs> so welcome, Yan. Welcome to the show. Hey, Zach. How's it going? Uh, we were talking about going back to episode two, actually. I think that might make a good discussion. We were talking about specifically... Uh, episode two being on jumping mechanics. And it's kind of interesting because over time, now that I think episode two was what, four years ago, which is crazy. But over time, my uh, my thoughts on topics have kind of changed, right? Because I've practiced more and I've learned new things. And I wonder, Yan, being the project director of Editar, which is our level design and platformer uh, for our community level design contest, did you... Is there any lessons you've learned, I guess, about developing uh, 2D platformers with respect to maybe how they control or the the level design aspect? Because I know I know there are some things that in my mind have changed about how I see platformers since episode two. I mean, uh, based on recent Steam feedback, I think I'm the last person you want to be talking to about this. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think it is, there's a general understanding that comes with sometimes just good enough isn't actually just good enough when we're working on a project and there are lots and lots of spinning plates all at the same time and you're trying to work to a deadline and you're crunching i mean one that is not the time to rewrite the player controller from scratch even if uh, the new player controller is much better than the old player controller but also it just it it takes a lot of time and a lot of testing to get things just right and there's always more things that you could be polishing and perfecting, getting just right. And I think different players come into a game with, with different, I guess, priorities. And for us as a development team, I think I think the 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 perfectness of the jump feel, for me personally, like actually playing the game is something that we didn't put that much emphasis on. I think we were so we were so focused on all of the level editing tools and features that I think maybe we didn't do quite as much playtesting as we could have done. I don't think the player controller is terrible, and I think the game works really well. Um, but I definitely think there's always going to be people who, who want your game to be better than it is. And and we, we can probably tweak it a little bit. We can probably kind of focus on making it feel really nice and juicy. Well, I mean, visually it is juicy already. But I've, I've seen that quite a lot with other people making their own platformers. There's always some people, and I think they're specifically like speedrunners and people who like who really need really tight, perfect controls. Where if you have any kind of frame stutter or any kind of inconsistency, they're just not going to get what they want out of it. Um, so you know what's funny is when I played Editor, I thought I personally thought the controls were like pretty good. I thought they felt pretty tight to me, um, but I definitely can see 
you're right. If you're like a speed running thing, you're going to be doing those controls over and over and over, and you're going to start to notice the the imprecision. Is that a word? I think I just made up a word. Yeah. But um, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, I think that that kind of makes sense, right? Like, if you're if it's a 10 second level and you have people trying to get on the leaderboard, um, and they're just doing like a thousand runs in an hour or something like that, they're going to start to feel the little hiccups in the uh, accuracy of the controller. Whereas, you know, I played, I, I went through a bunch of levels because we were testing other people's levels. And so maybe I didn't feel the same jumps over and over and notice those things. Do you think that? Yeah, I, think I, I, that I, I think I agree. And I think I, I, another thing that comes into it is just, I, I am not that target audience. I am not that mm. like pixel perfect speedrunner of a right. game. So I think if, with things like that, like, I could play the game and I think this feels pretty good. But I'm, I've noticed this a couple of times when I'm making video games. It's this idea that I'm making, you start working on a project thinking you know what you're doing. Um, and then by the end of it, you realize actually you don't even know the genre half as good as you thought you did. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's one of the things you sacrifice when you become a game developer is like you play games less. Yes. And you oh, spend man. more time doing other things. That is so true. We might have to come back to that. Uh, we're, we're also joined by two other of our patrons for this uh, session. We have Computer and Jan. Um, Computer, I believe, Computer, you're on the Editar team, right? Or have done some volunteer work for that? I've, I've done some volunteer work, yes. <laughs> I see. I, I, think, that's I, think, I think it's less than 1,000 hours, but, you know. <laughs> we're getting there. <laughs> less than 1,000 is only some. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been, been an absolute pleasure and honor to to work with Jan and Fresh and all the other guys like the core team the contributors on Editar it's a super fun project and I would be happy to put in way more time than I ever could <laughs> but yeah um, definitely part of the core team loving it and planning on staying on for a long time and uh, Jen you're working on your own project at the moment right now Panda and Crow uh, which I have played as part of the last monthly game jam um, it's sort of a, a puzzle game. Maybe I'll let you explain the, the core mechanics a little bit more. But yeah. Go ahead. Uh, absolutely. So um, I've been working on that, right? Uh, that was like last month's game. So it's a puzzle game. I'm a paraglide pilot myself. First bigger project that, I'm, that I've been working on since I started trying to become a game dev. Or actually, I, I started with an arcade version of that. So you would be just flying around this panda um, around the big world. Um, and then I soon noticed that the scope was uh, way bigger than I thought it would be. Probably something that most new game developers uh, notice sooner or later. Um, no, I, think, I thought it was- I think uh, you're the first uh, over scope. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I thought I was picking something small. Uh, turned out it was big. Um, and then I, I just had the idea while I was playing uh, that this could be a completely different genre. Uh, since so you would fly from cloud to cloud, like in like in the real world, you would uh, try to find uh, a thermal and gain altitude. And that way, I would say that paragliding is kind of a puzzle where you're trying to figure out should I fly to this mountain or to that mountain, um, or try to find the thermal somewhere in the flats. Um, and then I thought I could just seize the opportunity of your monthly game jam to try uh, if it 
yeah, if this game would work in a different genre. And that's what I tried. I thought the core mechanic was really solid. Um, to kind of describe it a little bit, I would say uh, it's a paragliding puzzler where you're trying to land on a specific tile. The uh, maps are hex-based. And you're trying to land on a specific tile, but you have to hit it the right elevation. And um, you kind of have to have like a one-tile runway to get there. Um, so you think with those two rules... Uh, it doesn't seem like there's a lot there, but then you start to throw in mixes of different um, elevations of the land, and then on top of the land, there's mountains and trees and stuff like that, and there's air gusts that like blow you up higher. And I think it does a really good job of taking simple, like a few simple mechanics, but combining them to be more than the sum of their parts, which is like a classic way for me, I think, to come up with a puzzle game. I really like that method of designing a puzzle game where you take simple pieces and, and put them all together. Now that everyone has a little bit of context about everything that everyone's working on, I do kind of want to revisit uh, what Yan was talking about with Editar and how some of the development maybe felt feature-driven. Would you say that's accurate, Yan? It was more feature-driven rather than playtest-driven. It was like you had a list of features and you're like, these are the things we want to develop. Would you say that's an accurate representation? I mean, I can only speak for myself. There's there's six of us on the core team, and I don't, other than you know, seeing the the code that people provide and the screenshots, I've, I've definitely noticed that everyone else, when they're showing me like the things that they're currently working on with their little demo levels, they have put so much more effort and detail into their demo levels than I do. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I just have like a couple of lines and I'm jumping around, whereas like. The guys are actually really enjoying using the game while they're building features. But, you know, I think I because I always have limited time, I was kind of just... I would rather get something done rather than nothing done, which means my my level of good enough is, is pretty low. And I, I don't I don't do nearly as much quality assurance as I should. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm I think I'm kind of there with you. I, my level of good enough is lower than maybe even I'd like sometimes. Um, but I just prioritize trying to make iterations faster, I guess, if that makes sense. Computer, maybe do you want to weigh in on how to, to make it clear, maybe if people don't know, maybe they don't participate in their Discord and they only listen. Um, Editar is kind of a group of volunteers developing it. It's sort of like you can imagine Mario Maker, but with the pirate theme. And it's a group of volunteers from our community making it. And Yan kind of manages it, but it's not like Yan is saying, here's here's the full design document. It's kind of people just all collectively putting their ideas into something that's actually really cool and really polished. You can find it on Steam. Yan, can you tell people how to find it on Steam? <laughs> it's E-D-I-T-A-R-R-R. Editor. There, okay. Yeah, so you can find it on Steam. Um Computer, maybe, do you want to weigh in on the development of it with the context of what I said about feature-driven development versus kind of finding the fun through playtesting and just seeing where that goes? For sure. Um, so I totally get where, where Jan is coming from because one, he acts as our sort of um, coordinator and leader. Like when we, like he doesn't sort of, tell us exactly what we're supposed to do or what features he needs or wants but we all kind of work under this assumption i think that 
it's his baby and uh, we're all sort of along for the ride and um, we we always try to respect that so um, I think he has despite all of us working at eye level a sort of different look at things and his focus is uh, a lot of the time on the back end stuff um, along with uh, Nathaniel Murphy's dad um, so like they their focus is hardcore on, on the back end systems they don't get to play around as much with the other stuff as we do like uh, uh, Fresh, for example, did the complete um, player controller from scratch, and so that obviously required a lot of playtesting on his part. And um, I did a lot of sort of um, sound feedback, visual feedback, particles, all that kind of stuff. Just everything that makes things fun to use and feel good and juicy. And so that also requires a lot of going in there, actually testing it out, seeing how it feels, getting opinions from other people, and all that. So. Um, I think uh, I have a somewhat different approach and perspective, but also at the same time, as you mentioned, uh, we've been crunching pretty hard just to get things done in time to our, at least approaching our <laughs> level of quality that we'd like to hit. Um, and so we've just been very focused on getting out as much as possible before the design challenge so that everybody can have all the tools and all the toys that they want to play with. Um, and we're definitely taking a get everything out there as quickly as possible, get feedback, and then start polishing things up approach. Yeah, I would say we're, we're sort of 50-50. I would say we actually, we complement each other very well because some of us take the feature-driven approach and keep an eye on what we need or what we could do next. And the other parts of us uh, do get in the nitty-gritty of the gameplay and try to make it feel as good as possible. I think that's a really important distinction you just made and maybe something that I don't, I couldn't see because of the perspective of how I usually make games, which is as a solo dev and not in a team where I don't I don't specialize like the back end stuff for me. If you've ever seen me do stuff on on stream, the back end is <laughs> it's just kind of trial and error until it works. So maybe I I approach all things almost as a play test it out and and go by feel and then when I try and figure out what this needs, um it's kind of like cooking, right? Like you taste it as you go and then you add stuff to it. But if you are like a back end specialist, you know more about the recipe, you know what I mean? Like you, you can do the recipe um, from memory or plan it out way better. You don't have to do that by feel style. Jen, did you work, did you work solo on Panda and Crow? Was that a solo project? Yeah, that's a solo project. Do you, um, do you have um, any perspective on, on that, on the difference between like solo and working in a team and maybe how you like, how you like to work? either by feel or maybe with a, a baked recipe or do you have a different way that you see it? Yeah, uh, definitely. I would love to work with other people um, on something. So I, I'm coming from a startup uh, background. So I'm a backend developer by, by trade. Um, and I'm just starting with all the front end and, and game stuff. Uh, and I'm working solo on my projects right now. And that is to prepare for uh, to to interview actually, so they're all uh, projects that end up in my resume, and that I'm using. But I'm very much looking forward. So I'm interviewing right now for a couple of uh, back-end developer and product owner positions, 
at game companies and I'm very much looking forward to working with other people on projects again. And just for the solo projects, I am a very much uh, field driven, I guess. I'm, I'm playing the game a lot myself. Uh, and then every morning I'm, I'm sorting through my Trello board and figuring out what the most important next thing is. But then I dive in and just try out um, the new features until I'm happy with it, until it really feels good. Yeah, I think, I think I'm the same as you because like you said, like working as a solo, you can go a lot more on feel. But if you're in a team, you can trust that, you know, the person doing the player controller is probably going on feel, uh, but you are in charge of storing the data for the leaderboards. Well, how do you code the back end of the leaderboards by feel? I mean, that's, that's kind of what I do <laughs> on stream is just, it's straight up trial and error, but maybe I don't, I'm not a professional programmer. Is there, is there accuracy to what I'm saying, or is do you you really do f kind of feel out how to do a back end of a leaderboard, or is it like a recipe that you just follow and you just do that step by step? No, I think similarly to most things with game dev, if you're coding if you're coding a leaderboard or creating features, you you start by broad brush strokes, getting your main chunks in place, and then you optimize and polish. Um, so you you might start by just saying like, oh, just you know, give me all of the scores from the leaderboard. And then you're suddenly like, okay, so now there's 100 scores in here. We can't put 100 scores on the, t on, on the page anyway. So I'm going to make it so that it only gives me the top scores, the top 10 scores. And then it just puts those on and you kind of iterate and optimize and kind of, um, well, that's my general approach. I, I like to get something working first and then optimize and improve. I do have some friends who would, you know, they, they write out every single line of code in their head and deal with all that before they start writing it. And I mean, I definitely can't do that, but there's, there's different approaches to it. I think what I've really underestimated about programming is that um, kind of, of freedom to approach a, a task in many different kinds of ways. Um, I don't know if I, I don't think I saw that before I met so many people through our community. And over time, our community has a lot of people who do uh, coding professionally and I've just learned that there's so many different ways. It, well, it's, it's like any kind of math problem, right? There's lots of ways to arrive to the right answer. Um, and they all have their pros and cons. And it seems like everyone, there's lots of arguments to be made. I guess not arguments, discussions about which way may, might be best. But yeah, I think I've really underestimated that about programming, which is good though, because I'm, I'm happy it's that way because I think it means that for people like me who maybe are always going to be novice programmers there's always going to be a way that i can make sense of it even if i'm the only one who understands my code i think a good benchmark is can you still understand your own stuff three months after you haven't touched it yeah <laughs> that is a very good benchmark and one that i always <laughs> exceed <laughs> <laughs> I like that you called it a benchmark. I, I, I would call that an, an unachievable desire. <laughs> so with that, I think we're going to move on to the next question. Our next question comes from a computer. Uh, so my question is sort of um, with how the games industry has been developing this year, 
uh, not for the companies as a whole, but for like the actual people working in the industry, um, you have sort of insight into that because you are also someone who has worked at a AAA studio and is now doing other stuff, if I may put it that way. And um, I was just wondering, how are you doing with that? How is the transition for you? And how do you feel looking forward? Because obviously you still want to keep doing game dev. You're still doing it. You have other options. Um, so I would guess that you're excited to work on other stuff, but what's that like for you now? So what computer is uh, <laughs> referring to is I was laid off from my job, which hasn't been announced on the podcast yet, but I'll do it in the intro of this episode. I did let everyone know on the, um, on the discord thing, uh, to answer your question, yeah, it's been a tough year. I can't remember the exact figure, but I know it's it's thousands of people have lost their job in the game industry this year. I think for me personally, I was prepared. Um, I kind of knew, like, I compare this to my old career, right, which was a very stable, a very stable thing. And I know that games are unstable. I started in indie which is like the most i started in mobile indie games which is like the most unstable way to do it and um i think if you can accept the instability which is not an easy thing to accept especially if you have um if people are counting on you for a paycheck i think i have a lot of privilege in that I don't have a lot of responsibility to other people right now, right? Like I don't have any children. Um, if I did, I think I would weigh this a lot differently. Going forward, I, I've i decided that nothing is going to keep me from making games. This is just what it's going to be in my life. Um, I, I really have discovered my passion, and this is truly it's been my passion my entire life. I was kind of doing other things like my old job, because, um, I don't know, it just felt like that's what everyone did. But once I discovered my passion, I don't think there's any going back for me now. Like, I don't know how I'll ever go back to doing something that I don't love. I don't know if I'll ever arrive at a point where I can say this is stable, but I want to arrive at a point where I can say this is safe. At some point, I hope I, hope I do have people who are counting on me for responsibility. Like, at some point, I do want a family, but... Um, that's kind of the biggest question for me is how to reconcile this instability with that. And I don't have a good answer for that yet right now, but what's worked for me up to this point is small incremental improvements, just a little bit better every time. And then you do that over the course of many years. And when I look at it in the big picture, I've come a really long way. There was a second part to your question too, Colm Peter. I don't remember it. I rambled for a long time. <laughs> It was perfect. Thank you uh, for your open and honest thoughts. That's uh, It's both uh, sort of crushing because I'm on the other side of what you described. I do have responsibility and I do need to keep that in mind. But then I feel very strongly like you about um, this being my true passion and being unable to imagine doing anything else all day, every day. Um, so yeah, sorry, now I'm rambling. So, um, <laughs> so, uh, second part of that question essentially is, uh, I recall you talking about, um, 
your your ideal situation in terms of where do you want to go with game dev being um, a sort of leadership position of a i think smaller or mid-range team uh, you said uh, and being able to fulfill your own vision but also having people to to direct and and work with you on stuff and so i like how do you see yourself getting there currently um and if you could pick any sort of uh approach would you say you'd rather have a publisher backing you would you prefer the kickstarter route or just sort of come up with the cash like some people like to call it bootstrapping uh, in other ways and sort of try to set your own deadlines and just see where you can take it in a certain timeline i think i'll answer it in reverse um i would start with okay where do i want to end up what is the ideal situation for me I think a team of between five and 10 people is the most efficient. You don't suffer from like having a, a large team where it's really hard to communicate the vision, but you also have enough room to have like really specialized people and, and be able to leverage the power of a larger team. How would I fund that? Ideally, it is, it is self-published. Whether or not that's realistic, I'm not sure. I think it'll... It, requires one to speculate about the games industry and the market. And I think the games industry and the market is going to be have a, a large shakeup with AI tools. I think with the changes of AI and the way that it's going to shake out in the industry is that it'll start to favor smaller teams. I think AAA companies, um, even the, even they themselves will will shrink. But I think it actually puts indie and double A's on more of a competitive footing. It's not going to be about who can have the most manpower. It's going to be about who can leverage these tools now. Uh, because the tools will just be increased manpower. To go any further would be a whole separate discussion. But I do think it's something that if anyone's looking... Um, at this in like a 10 or 20 year scale of this being their career. I think it's something they have to think deeply about. All right, we need to move on to the next topic. Yan, as in the dev of Panda and Crow. I would be interested to hear if you could staff your dream team for your like indie studio. These five to 10 people that you envision, how would you staff them? What would be the roles and what would you be looking for in the individual uh, candidates? Ooh, that's a really good question. I think. Um, right. What is what is your what is your, you know, recipe for success? Yes. Okay. So if we say let's go to that idea of having five to seven people, I would need. You definitely have to have one artist, an art director. I think that's what the, my very first hire, is an art director, someone whose um, portfolio or or whatever it is, maybe just their style. Um, I think is really interesting but also very marketable one of the most important things is well let's just like look at it very on a narrow scale like a steam capsule is maybe one of the most important pieces of marketing that you have so to to have art that isn't the best or gives you the best chance for success i think is already starting on on the wrong foot so i think the very first person i would hire is a is an art director i would have 
maybe three or four generalists. I really like the idea of being a generalist, especially in an era where we do have like powerful AI tools. Um, and I'm out of those people, I'm looking for people who have like a game design eye, right? Like they can just kind of feel in the same way an artist can maybe design an advertisement or something like that. And they can just kind of feel when it's right, which by the way, I do not have the skill. I'm really bad at like graphic design in the same way that someone who's good at graphic design can just feel when something looks nice, like a flyer or something. I think certain people develop an eye for game design. And I don't think it's some like special thing that you're born with that only some people get. I think you just get it from playing games and enjoying them and like thinking critically about them and, and understanding the cross point between why a designer made a choice and what emotion they were trying to evoke with that choice. So I think I would want to work with people who really understand that dynamic. And then um, the other positions I would fill, let's see what I'm at, five people including me. I would definitely have a backend specialist for um, you know anything that I wanted to do with uh, data stuff. I think you can I think you can get a lot out of having an audience for your games and providing I don't know like services for them. Does that make sense like a, a community based service? Things like uh like a Discord bot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> huh, who <laughs> who would fill this role for me? <laughs> so you need you need someone who's good at programming, at backend work and at managing your community. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, who does that? I don't know. I think that's a fairy tale thing. Maybe that doesn't exist. <laughs> Sounds unlikely. <laughs> yeah, we need we need someone like that. And yeah, I, I guess um, the generalists, obviously, you want someone who's pretty good at programming. I would work in Unity if Unity's still around when I'm there and it hasn't become something horrible <laughs> when we get to this point. I guess to answer your question more concisely, I would weight it towards generalists who have that design eye. And the specialists would be people who provide things that you, you cannot get from anyone else. An art director literally is probably responsible for most of your sales just because people only click on games that look good, that they like want. And I don't mean that like look good, like realistic. I mean, look good, like they like the art style and it's intriguing and they click on the thing. They don't even get to the gameplay if they don't, if the art doesn't catch their eye first on the Steam page. So I think that that would why that would be my first hire. I wonder, um, Jan, have you thought about, have you thought about what you would do? Like, if you were to run a, a small studio of people, like who would be your first hire? Maybe who would you, who would you, what would you look out of for, for people to hire? I think I'm with you on, um, art, art is my biggest week, my biggest blind spot. So I think that would be the first hire. Like I, I can cover programming. I, I need an artist. Um, Julian really wisely pointed out a sound designer as being very important in making video games as well. Oh man, people um, are going to be upset I didn't mention that. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think, although that it does highlight, though, that when you're talking about a team, there are 
permanent full-time positions yes and there are contracting positions right and i think a sound designer is a really good candidate for a contractor yes that you 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 pull in i would have someone on retainer for ad hoc work like sound effects and bits and pieces that need to be done bit by bit and then i would contract out key areas of time for a game's development for audio soundtracks and like really important bits once you've got an idea of what you want from that so you want someone to do more at some time and less of another time it is beneficial to have relationships with people and to to have ongoing work from the same people rather than just you know for every game going out and just getting some music when you need it yeah um i totally agree and then another really important role that i would bring in just because it would be one thing less that I have to do is is have somebody who has a skill set for marketing and community management hopefully the same person um just because again that would that's just a continuous job that just you just need someone working on that pushing it the entire time there's different things to be done at different times in a game's life cycle but you need somebody pushing um social media community management um pushing the artist to prom- pr- create promotional work pushing just just having constant outward focused communication um and i think that is a full-time job that isn't that isn't something that somebody just does however i do really like what you were saying about the generalists and actually i'm finding this when we're trying to hire four people in my current company my day job that actually um generalists are way more useful than than really specialists when it comes to a small team because you always have ebb and flow in demand and workload and sometimes there's more to do and sometimes there's less to do and a generalist is more likely to be able to pick up whatever needs doing rather than a specialist who is really really good at you know server authoritative multiplayer but can't really do anything on the game design front yeah i think with a small team you have to be mostly gen generalist just to just to cover everything Glackon, do you have a? Do you have any thoughts on the, on how a, this team dynamic might work, or how what you would want? Yeah, like it changes a lot. Um, I think the other one that I don't think has been mentioned is maybe the most controversial one, which is that project manager. <laughs> oh, interesting. I I think I would want a project manager just because I know what I would be like. Uh, and I think especially with creative people, we just want to keep on adding and making it as best as it can be. So having a project manager there to say, we need to add that date. No, that's an interesting think, addition. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think I, I would look for people who are programmers specifically. I, I would try and look for indie game devs. Mm. Um, it kind of alludes to what you were saying anyway. Uh, anyway. I think um, a project manager, a producer, you're right, because once you start getting more people together, the scope creep gets exponentially worse. And I like to think that scope creep is something that I have gotten good control over um, just with like my own personal projects. But then I don't know. I don't know if that's actually true or (laughs) I don't know. Every time that's the danger of scope creep. Every time you think you have it conquered, then it learns a, n- a new way to humble you um, yeah, creeps think, up on you yeah I, <laughs> I guess creep is the right word i think when when there's more people it, at least i've found 
if there's more people making the game and somebody comes up with a great idea, it's really it's harder to say no to that. Um, so you end up taking on. Right. It's easier to like if it's your own if it's your own project or your solo dev, and you come up with a great idea, but it just isn't gonna fit. Um, it's easy to like, as the term they say, kill your baby. It's easier to do that to your own ideas than if it's someone else's idea. And it is a good, it's an objectively good idea, but it's just not going to fit. It's hard to, it's hard to do that. I've, I've seen that in our, in our team monthly game jam games. I've seen that derail projects before, but anyways, um, I'll let, I'm surprised anyone, I'm surprised anyone on the editor team is still working on it, (laughs) considering how often I shut down good ideas. Yeah. And it has to be done. It's a hard, it's a hard thing to do, but it has to be done. It's funny because in my day, I, before I started doing management work, I considered myself a yes man because I'm a programmer, I'm a problem solver, I can fix any problem. Anything you come to me, yes, I can do that. Whereas the second you get into management, everything becomes about nope, nope, yeah. nope, 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 not doing any of that. Lastly, I'll ask Yen with a J, um, how, do you, how do you see this? How would you, if you were to structure this five to seven person team, is there anything else you would do different? I agree on most that have been said, I think. So I would definitely staff uh, someone who's really, really good at art first, same as you, and then someone who's really, really good at user experience uh, and anything that the user touches uh, in terms of like front-end development, I would say, and then use a bunch of generalists. I think generalists can be the fabric that connect everything but um just in in the area of visuals uh user experience and sound that's something you you want experts in i think just because you want the highest quality because that's where um people will judge you on right Uh, that determines how much fun the game actually is so I'm I'm more of a backend engineer myself, uh, and I guess in in backend engineering, good enough is good enough unless you're building like an MMO and you need you know really really good right uh, scalability built in or something like that. But otherwise, um, good enough will be good enough, and the player will not notice if the code is you know good but not exceptional. Uh, but when it comes to um, the the jumping mechanics or like the juice of the game and the capsule design as you mentioned earlier that's where uh people will that that will just make the the biggest impact so i will go for experts in in those areas and more generalists everywhere else all right well i think that means it is time for the next question um i have a good segue for the next thing but I want to just be extra sure that I didn't break anything in the recording. Yan, can you just like say a few sentences or something? Uh, the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plane. Did you just come up with that? No. <laughs> Is that a common saying? Yeah. It's uh, it's it's an eloquency spa- saying. It's like when you do it. It's it's like a, a stereotype of something you would learn for good diction. Oh. The ra- the Good. rain in Spain falls mainly on the plane. Good diction. That's probably why I'd never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs>
All right. Um, Glycon, do you have uh, a question ready? I can, yeah. before you, before you start, I'm going to give you a segue and I'll, I'll like, and I'll lead you into it so that it sounds nice. Um, I just wanted to make sure you were ready. Speaking of being good at art and code, our next, um, patron is, sorry, let me start again. Speaking good at being, God damn it. <laughs> Don't cut that. That's going in the soundboard. <laughs> Speaking good. <laughs> Speaking good. Speaking of being good at both art and code, our next guest patron with a question is Glycon, who also I want you to um I want you to put a little promo in for your game because it comes out soon. So yeah, feel free to ask your question and then at the end we'll talk about your game. Yeah, cheers. Um just a, a quick one. Uh, what kind of time scales would you would you have on finishing your games, and how many games would you want to make simultaneously, or would it just be the one? Oh, this is a great question. Okay, so what kind of time scales do I have for the games? When I first started doing indie, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna do this as a business. The first time I tried to do it full time, I thought, let me do. I had a crazy unrealistic expectation. I was like, I'm going to do a game like every three months, all the way done and finished. And my, my idea with that was I was afraid of if I took like two years to make a game and it flopped, that was my one chance, right? That was all my savings. Um, but if I could make a game every three months, I would just have like more coins in the slot machine, right? And, and I would have to scope it properly and I'd have to set my expectations properly, right? Like a game that you make in three months might sell less than when you do in two years, although you look at something like Vampire Survivors and I don't know, at a certain point, it's almost like faster development is better. But now I think, I think I'm going to do a little bit longer schedules, maybe like six to eight months is going to be my ideal time scale. I think that's going to be different for everyone and it's going to largely depend on why they make games. Like if you're a hobbyist, you know, your time scale is much longer. Um, mine right now is driven by my savings and like the fact that I need money coming in if I'm going to keep doing this. As far as the second part of your question, can you remind me? Um, how many games would you want to work on at one time? How many games? Oh, you're right. Okay. How many games would I work on at one time? Um, I personally can only work on one. I can only work on one game at a time. I've tried to do two. Or, or three of like, I've tried to do a game jam, like a monthly game jam and work on my personal project. I just find myself once I'm in the zone on working on a project, I'm in the zone for that. And I'm going to just be doing it all day. Those are my most efficient. Those are like when I'm working the most efficient. And I find if I have my attention divided between multiple projects, then I lose a ton of efficiency because like today I'm working on this thing and then the next day I'm working on that thing is how you would think it would go. But really it's more like all week I'm going to work on this thing and I'll, I'll go to that other project next week. But by the time I get to the other project, I've forgotten. And then I finally get in the zone on that other project. And then, yeah, it just, it doesn't work for me doing two at once. So yeah, I prefer to do one at a time. Maybe uh, we can go through everyone in the group and briefly you can say, uh, what is your time scale for making a game? How long are your cycles? And do you work on more than one game at once? Yeah, and do you want to start? I mean, what is it now? Four years to make one game? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think I'm think i similar. I think 
if I allow myself to be distracted by another project, that's just a surefire recipe of the first project never getting finished. Yep. I'm the same. Computer? So it's similar for me, but also not. So I, I also tend to get hyper invested in whatever I'm doing and want to make it perfect. So like Editar, for example, has drawn all of my focus right now. But also it has given me new perspectives. It has reinvigorated my passion for game dev in a lot of ways. And like I'm constantly working on it enjoying my work on it and then looking forward to putting what i've learned to practice in my own primary project that i've been <laughs> chipping away at also for many years now um so i can see it being um and i've actually heard of certain indies doing it this way where you where you have like one big project and then you start just throwing in prototypes here and there. Like everybody gets to sort of head up projects uh, every now and then and see where they can take something. And so you get a sort of breath of fresh air. It's like doing a game jam every now and then or something, right? So you, you get a fresh set of eyes. You, you let your thoughts sort of wander to other places and then you come back to it and then you yeah hopefully feel like you have more to, to give to the project than you had previously. So um, multiple full-time projects in parallel, I think, would be tough for me as well. But I love sort of jumping back and forth between tasks in general and jumping back and forth between smaller projects. I think it worked very well for me in the long run. Yeah, actually, I really agree with you. The one exception I make is that um, I like to do game jams as a short refresh, like you were saying. Um, like if I'm feeling maybe a little bit burned out on the my, my core project I'll do like a a little week-long game jam or just a prototype or just something else um, that's what I did back when I was developing bounce shot I kind of got in a hole with it where I just was I was tired of working on it for a little bit and I would do I think I did like three or four game jams that year and that was just they served as like really nice short refreshes Yen, since you this is Yen with the J, by the way. Um, since you have been making uh, games for your portfolio, I'm wondering maybe how has how has your cycle been different? Yeah, I have a little bit of beef with you, Zach. Um, I was happily working on my one game, and I thought, okay, uh, I actually have, I I heard you saying on the pod, why not work on one project and then. As, as a bit of a refresher to, to Game Jam. And so I joined your Game Jam, but it unfortunately was not a two-day Game Jam, but a one-month Game Jam. <laughs> so I spent the full month, 60, 70 hours a week, the full <laughs> month working on, on this other game. Um, but that didn't work too well. But uh, on the bright side, I, I saw that that game had uh, a smaller scope and was way more manageable um, and I got really far with that but then I tried something else in another game jam and I thought okay what, what could be the like the smallest scope that I could actually work on and that's uh, my new game stack stack boom which has like one mechanic right you you pile toys on each other um, until it collapses and everything explodes and it's really fun for me at least um, so I, I kind of like 
the idea of that, but I haven't tried yet. So I, I just joined two month-long game jams, and then they completely consumed me. Uh, but ideally, I think it would work on just one project. Uh, I'm happy that I could try a couple different projects now. Now I can see that that I maybe uh, I've bitten off more than I could chew, and I, now I can focus on something that's really, really realistic to finish, and I hope that I can actually publish it uh, still this year. And yeah, lastly, we'll wrap it up with Glycon. How many games do you work on at once, and um, maybe you want to talk about the cycle of your most recent game, which I think comes out very soon. Is that right? Yeah, the 14th of December. I don't know if I should say how many days in advance from there. Oh, yeah, no, 14th of December. 14th of December. Um, well, you might as well start up top. Where can people find it? What's the name of it? Um, it's on Steam, uh, and it's called Emplacement. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a turn-based strategy, meets Builder. It's got PvP, single-player, survival mode. Just shoved everything in it. <laughs> to try and make it fun and it's uh, the original idea of this um, supposed to be a competitive game but there was lots of good advice to say you need a fan base so you need a single player with AI so it's kind of merged into that but I think the competitive side of it is, is pretty good and what was the um, development cycle of emplacement like i mean how long have you been working on this um i did want to work on it for a year but like any uh game that most things probably work on it, it goes on for longer so it's been about two years which is not too bad it could be worse <laughs> um yeah two years and is uh, this the is this the only thing you've worked on in those two years? I say only like that's a bad. Th I don't <laughs> the way I put the emphasis on only on that sounded weird. Um, <laughs> by only I mean has anything else distracted you from this, or have you have you done other game jams or anything while you're working on this? Maybe other prototypes, or have has your focus been solely on this? Yeah, it's kind of similar to what you guys have already said, and it's. Game jams in between it, I think. If I don't do game jams, I just get sick of the game and then still the excitement kind of dies down if I don't distract myself with something else in the middle. Yeah, I think everyone should go check out the game Emplacement on Steam. Do me a favor and just at least go look at the screenshots because I really love what you've done with like these floating islands and the uh, the art style of it and like how there's islands way off in the distance. Um it's just got such an interesting aesthetic to me. And, uh, yeah, I'm really excited for it. Congrats on your release. Uh, by the time this episode is out, it will be out. So congrats, man. Yeah, no, cheers. Appreciate it. All right. So uh, to end this session, it's something I think I'm going to ask every one of our patrons. And I think it's a really interesting question. And maybe it's even a, a hard question to answer. But I wanted to ask, why is it that you put yourself through all of this hard work and sometimes even the torture that is game development. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. I don't think it makes sense sometimes how much effort goes into this and how hard it is. And yet all of us put in all that effort and that hard work and there must be something that is driving us to do it. And I'm curious what it is. So 
we will start with our very own number two. Yen will give him the hardest question. We'll let him start off the round. Because I can't stop. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't let me. Um, so I think there's a couple of parts to this. On the one hand, I do really enjoy um, watching people get both joy and rage from something that I have created. <laughs> I think that's just part of the, the creative process. Like, I think artists don't... Well, I've, I'm not an artist, so I can't really tell. But I, I, I like to think that artists don't just make something to be put into a box and never seen. You kind of want to create something to be seen by others and to be hopefully enjoyed by others. So I really appreciate that. And then I think the other reason I don't stop doing game dev is purely because of this podcast and this Discord server. I have made so many friends over the last couple of years that I just can't stay away. I uh, I come, I log on every single day to see what people are talking about compulsively, just because it's a really great place to hang out and spend time and you know, talk to other people. Well, I'm happy we're enabling your addiction. <laughs> My wife has words with you. Uh, computer, do you have any do you have any insights on why why it is that you do this crazy thing? First of all, my wife is next in line, so uh, just so you're aware. <laughs> I would actually, I would echo a lot of uh, what Yan said. So one thing for me is no other art form, and I do consider games in many ways to be an art form, um, lets you explore so many spaces while also solving so many puzzles and, and just this combination of wildly creative work with with uh, solving complex issues and all that. It just, yeah, it is, it is a massive rush. I guess it's addictive. It's just fun to also to create, to not just consume all the time, but to actually to make something and then to have it also be scalable to such incredibly ridiculous degrees where it's actually feasible to make something in your bedroom and have potentially thousands maybe if you're going to reach for the stars millions of people someday enjoy something you made that's insane to me but ultimately i've always felt so drawn to and connected to creative people like the the people i feel the most are my people it has nothing to do with where you're born what you look like what you what your gender or sexuality is or anything of that sort it's always people who make cool stuff they get me out of bed in the morning and being able to interface with those people and nerd out with them and just hit on each other's ideas and springboard and it it's it's incredible and i if i could do that every day for the rest of my life i would be completely content wow that was a really well-spoken answer <laughs> thank you <laughs> i guess i'll i'll go next um the reason i think i make games is uh well i don't know if i could stop i think in the same way yan said it's it's almost compulsive for me it's something i've done ever since i was a kid and um I don't know what else I would do with my time. You know what I mean? It's it's one thing that really drives me. I 
I can't stop thinking about it even when I want to, even when I'm trying to fall asleep at night. I'm just I'm thinking about the mechanics or or whatever it is that's got me intrigued about game design. I think if I could replace parts of it, I might. I might replace like the coding part, for instance. I, it doesn't interest me. It's more of a means to an end. Um, but at the end of the day, there's so much to this, to to making games. There's so much to learn, and I could just, I could think about it all day long, and I could think about it for the rest of my life and never run out of things to learn. And uh, that part is very appetizing to me as well. Uh, Glycon, you're next. Why is it that you make games? When I was younger, I spent a lot of time by myself. So games was always my go-to. Um, I was never considered smart, so I never, as I got older, I never thought I'd be making games, but I always loved the thought of making games. Um, but as I've got older, it kind of helped me get a job as I got into it. Just following tutorials on YouTube and then just spiraled into this same sort of thing. Uh, compulsive. I just want to make games all the time now. Um, you know, it lets me be creative, helps, lets me relax. Um, it's always a thing that's pushing me forward. So, yeah, I think there's so many reasons. Yeah, it's almost. Um, it's almost hard to like list them all. It's like there's so many benefits. But it, always at the core, like as I said, um, I spend a lot of time by myself. So being able to make something for smaller past me is really yeah. Um, it's a nice thought. Um, yeah, that is a nice thought. I wonder if like smaller or, or past you looks at you now. And it's just like in an awe of the power that you have, you know what I mean, to to create a game. Um, I remember like when I was a kid, I would I would use Legos as like the rendering thing of my thing, and in my mind, everything was so everything was so cool, right? It was like triple A high end graphics, but really, it was just like Legos kind of just built into a <laughs> a crappy little thing. But I wonder if past you could see you you now. Um, they would just be like in awe. Yeah, I don't know if you've had this con- sort of conversations with your pals as well, but you would always take like GTA or something, and then say, "Oh, I would make a game that's in space, but GTA." Yeah. And you would come up with like these really they still sound amazing, but the reality is, you know, it's a bit harder to make this sort. Of <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, and we'll leave it with um, Yan. What do you? What is the reason that you make games? Why do you put yourself through this? It's uh, a good question. <laughs> I so uh, in my past life, I founded a couple of companies, uh, and my most recent one was developing business software. Um, that was a good job, and I had a great team. Um, was somewhat successful, but I just didn't fill my heart with joy. And the first company that I found was actually a game company. And I, um, now I've, I've moved to a different city and I just wanted to start something new. And I remembered how happy I was when I, um, when I created this game back in, that's like back in 2006. And the other thing is that what I, what I built in my, in my last company, 
I couldn't really share it with the people that are important to me because it's uh, something very specific for like a specific uh, industry. So I couldn't share it with my friends or my my partner. They can't see what I'm building, right? And games are so accessible. You can um, you can just put someone in front of a game and they will probably understand it and, and see what you're building. And I, I really enjoy, um, I, I take a lot of pride in what I'm building. I love building things and I love building things that delight people. And with games, I can. it's just easier to share that with the people I care about. That is a really good point about being able to share, share your work with others and have them immediately understand. That is another, it's one of those like benefits when, when we're talking about there's just too many benefits to list. That's one that mm. I maybe didn't even consider at first, but now that you point that out, that is a great reason. Um, how many people get to do a job like that where they can, they can share what they do with like their, their kids or something like that. And their kids immediately you can recognize and know what it is. And, um, you can kind of directly create that joy for other people. That is, that is actually a really special part of this that maybe I overlooked. If, if you'll just permit me a, a less sophisticated answer real quick, do you guys, do any of you happen to enjoy dark souls or anything similar? <laughs> because, uh, the way you keep describing game dev, uh, feels an awful lot like that. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome everyone to the second session of the Patron Q&A. I am joined today by patrons Alex Epton and Murphy's dad. Uh, we're going to go through a little bit of a roundtable discussion similar to session one. So without further ado, let's get started. Murphy, uh, feel free to start us off with the first question. I'm not sure if you've talked about it before, but can you tell us a little more about like the story of how you got started on this podcast and like... I don't know. Did you have any background doing any kind of podcasting or recording before that? Like, how'd you get going with this thing? That's a really good, that's a really good question, actually. Uh, I know I've told this story before. I think it was on a stream, though. Um, so it might be good to get it down once for the podcast. So, yeah, I I started the podcast right around the time I started to have doubts about my job if my career was right for me. It was I was coming right out of college and while I was in college I was making mobile games on the side and um, I had been making games and doing like game design stuff ever since I was a child but really was when I was in college is when I found my footing uh, making games and it was always just a side thing and then once I graduated I was like okay that's just you know a thing that I did in the past um, it'll just be a hobby for me and I started my career doing like civil engineering stuff. And within like a year of doing that, I really started to have doubts of like, is this for me? And during that job, I would listen to podcasts all the time because I had to do this really annoying like data entry stuff where I was just going through a giant spreadsheet and inputting data about concrete. And I would listen to podcasts and I was like, I wish there was a podcast about game development, but it wasn't just like the interview style shows. I wish it was like very applicable lessons and stuff about game development and design specifically. And it just, it didn't exist in the way that I envisioned it. And at this time, I'm still making games on the side. I'm actually switching away from mobile games. and I'm starting to 
experiment with PC prototypes. Um, and I'm just prototyping a whole bunch of stuff, but not really ever finishing anything. And it was like a fleeting idea in my mind, right? Like, I wish there was a podcast like that. I bet I could do it. But I never like took the action very seriously. And then my job got really intense and I wanted to leave kind of badly. And I kind of coped with it by getting more invested in game development stuff. And that's when I was like, well, if I'm looking for these, if I'm looking for, you know, this kind of information, I bet there is tons of people looking for the same stuff. And I know how hard it was for me to find beginner level things when I was starting. And I just kind of saw a gap. And so I decided, well, let me just record the podcast and, and write down, you know, some things that I've learned on my on my path over the last couple of years doing it. And then it just slowly grew into this thing that I never expected it to get this big. I <laughs> I never in a million years thought I would do like we're almost up to 80 episodes now. I honestly, I thought like 10 episodes, it would just be like a short little thing. And now it's crazy. <laughs> it's yeah. I, I don't know. I don't really know what to say at this point other than um, I'm really happy that I decided to do it. And yeah, I guess uh, uh, does that answer your question or? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, sorry if I'm breaking the format, but um, I, I remember like, I think like a year before I started listening, like looking for a podcast that like, yeah, does what you do and what you were saying is the gap and not finding anything. It was just like, yeah, a lot of like interviews with like industry veterans and kind of talking about things at like a, a different level than like, yeah, what I was looking for. And then deciding I'd like check again and stumbled across the, the game dev field guide and uh, it was perfect. And, but yeah, I think it's really impressive though. Also like, and I've, I've always really liked the very like casual tone pad and like, but I think you, you do it really well. Um, and that's, that's pretty impressive considering you don't, sounds like you don't really have a background like doing any kind of, I don't know, like uh podcasting or anything like that. I think you've done a really good job. So no, I, Thank you, man. That's really kind of you to say. Yeah, I think I didn't have any, I didn't have any experience with podcast stuff. I think you can really tell that in the first couple episodes because now, like, I write, I write entire scripts for the whole thing. But back then, I would just write a few bullet points of like, here's good information that helped me, or information that I, you know, knew about and really took to heart when designing my stuff. And then I would just go, I would just freestyle off the bullet points. I think in the older episodes you can really tell, but I'm I'm happy with how it works now. It's just it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work writing a one episode is about eight pages of script. So, um, I I do want to say though, like I there are other game development podcasts that I really enjoy. Um, I like the one that Mrs. Is, is does the yeah I make games. I think the interview shows are interesting and it's nice to hear from people who have successful careers but at the same time one it requires being a really good interviewer to like extract the right information um and sometimes i feel like the interview shows just kind of go off the rails or like they're just talking about what they their favorite food is or something like that and it's like that's not why i'm i'm listening but then also um even when they are saying something like when it's live like that, you might not be able to give the best example or you didn't have a chance to prepare the right thing. Um, and 
when I can do like a more lecture style, I can prepare the lesson. It can be something that's uh, intended to be like a learning material rather than just listening noise. Does that make sense? Not that I think all interview shows are just listening noise, but I think they just have different in, intended purposes. For sure. And you listen to enough of those interview shows and it's like, it's always some person that got into game dev like in the eighties or nineties. And it's just so unrelatable now. Like the stories, like if that is your goal to like be a professional game developer or something like that, like it's just a totally different landscape now. Like you're much, you're not going to just like get, get hired randomly. (laughs) Like some of the, like some of these people did, you know, and it's always the same story. And it's like, that's a cool story and it's cool to hear that. But then at the same time, it's like what you're saying, like you want to learn and like the, your show like fills that gap, you know, it's like an educational resource more than it is like, here's the crazy stuff that we used to do at Crystal Dynamics or whatever, you know? I think another thing that I try and do, this is like one of the big things that when I was um, thinking about the podcast, like making it, I was like, let me... there's a bunch of things that I know that people told me that isn't exactly like upfront information, but it has really helped me. For instance, um, like in a 2D platformer, how you want to make sure that the character is accelerating on the way down. And I remember that being the very first like focused episode. It's episode two, I think, is jumping mechanics. And I remember like that's not something that you would necessarily learn Uh, But it's something that you need to tell all beginners, right? Like if you're an experienced platform developer, you probably know that. But I feel like sometimes um, it gets to a point where if you're experienced at something, you forget the things that were like brand new to you, like the, the foundational ideas. You just assume that everyone knows them. And I realize that there are things that should be told to beginners that these interview shows don't really learn because they're making the assumption that everyone knows that right like they might use an acronym for something and they just assume that that someone knows what that is but i would rather make a show diving deep into what the acronym means and start all the way at the foundational level and kind of build it up for the beginner and intermediate audience and i think that's another thing that i recognized that there was a gap for there was a gap for beginners particularly with design which is something that i'm really passionate about and something that i happen to know a lot about, not because, I don't know, I was like born with special knowledge or anything like that. It's just, I happen to read lots of articles and books and learn these things through practice. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to pass along the information, I guess. It's so helpful to get it in a clump too, like, because then you'll be listening to, you know, some interview or something and you'll get little nuggets of like, oh, like, oh, I didn't realize that that was common practice to do damage with an interface or something like that. Just something that everybody does, you know, and, and you've been doing it some st- totally stupid way because you've been teaching yourself. And then like somebody just throws that out and then you all of a sudden notice like, oh, yeah, everybody does that like that. And like, when was that agreed on or somebody learned it from somebody else? But like to have it all kind of condensed into into a you know, a format that's easier to digest instead of like wading through an hour long interview to get that tidbit. It's like super helpful. Yeah. Game development is full of those things of like, it's just built on everyone's um, combined knowledge and it's easy to get lost. <laughs> it's it's just really easy to get lost uh, because I don't know, the information's just, it's assumed that, I, yeah, everyone knows that. 
but there's new people trying out game dev all the time and no one no one tells them these things so the curse of knowledge is what it's called the curse of knowledge yeah it's like when you're you you aren't able to explain things well to beginners because you're you know too much so like you can't fathom not understanding something i see i see so i know i've heard it called the the curse (laughs) of knowledge yeah i know just enough to be able to explain it to others but not enough to be an expert (laughs) <laughs> yeah i guess maybe <laughs> it's all making sense <laughs> let's move on to uh the next topic alex do you have a question uh for me at at some point in the last couple of years you worked as a game designer for a company and i also noticed that you were still working on your own game and i was wondering if there was stuff that you took home from working at the company, whether it's like, you know, I don't know, like code architecture stuff or just like how you're, you know, tuning the numbers and the stats in the games or, or something like that. Like, what have you taken and what have you taken back and applied to, to your solo dev job from that, from that gig? On one hand, everything was kept very clean and separate, including like lots of, um, documents like legal documents and things like that the company that i work for actually had a really a really nice i don't know if nice is the right word i a really fair a really fair agreement with me that i could still work on the indie games and work for them as long as they weren't like in competing genres right and and i think that's fair to both parties it'd be really weird if like at my day job i was making a 4x game and then I was like, if I had a really good idea at my day job, I was like, oh, I'm going to save that for my own 4X game that I'm going to work on tonight. That would be like really unfair. Why are they paying me at that point? So yeah, from the like the legal standpoint, I had to make sure that everything was very separate and yeah, the direct transfer of ideas, like no, I, none of that was happening, especially like code or even like game design stuff. It, it just, I kept the things very separate. As far as like overarching lessons about game design um i learned so much just like in personal development as a designer i learned so much in the last year uh from people who have been doing it a lot longer than me in a genre that is really hard to to design 4x strategy games are really hard to design i think it's one of the hardest to find the fun because like in a in a physics-based shooting game for instance you can kind of feel the fun, right? But in a strategy game, it's it's really hard. It's kind of weird. It's kind of weird what leads to fun in a strategy game. And I learned so much about um, designing. Uh, I talk about like the, the golden rule, right? Like designing to evoke feeling. I always thought evoking feeling was done with, well, I can, I can draw a straight line of how that's done in an FPS, for instance, right? You have like really great sound effect with the gun and, and screen shake when you shoot it and and a very satisfying projectile and, you know, effects and stuff like that. But I learned so much about how making someone think and making someone think about a decision and like weighing decisions and those those slow burn things that really um, drive emotion the, the narrative side of driving emotion. I, I learned so much about that kind of stuff, which I've never really had a lot of practice with because it just hasn't been the game I've been able to make in the past. So 
yeah, I was really thankful for that. I, I worked a lot with our UI team too, and I learned so much about not just making functional UI, but making UI that looks good and making UI that was flexible and accessible to people with like disabilities. My eyes were really open to how much more there is, and I already knew there was a lot, but how much more there is to a 4X game and um, just strategy games in general. And I was really blessed to be able to work with people who have been doing it for a really long time and have such a big... Um, breadth of experience and to have a lot of those lessons passed on to me i was very fortunate to have that does that answer your question alex are we looking for something else yeah yeah the second part not for sure it answered it like not not if you were taking stuff home because yeah that would be super weird but like yeah i was just really really curious like what you the bigger picture stuff that you were able to apply to your own work like yeah. super interesting Sorry, maybe I misinterpret when you said taking stuff home. You meant like the lessons that I learned, not literally. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I no. gotta... and, I, and, I, and I think you answered it. You know, it's like, oh, we're making a skateboarding game at work and I'm making a skateboarding game at home. <laughs> yeah, that would be like super unethical and no conflict of interest there. <laughs> yeah, definitely not that. But it's cool that you got to work at a company where they were like, you can go ahead and do your own thing. Like, yes. By the like, way, that's, that's not a awesome. that's not a common thing in the industry. I I really lucked out with that. I, which is unfortunate. I think it's a very fair. I think it's a really fair um thing to do, but obviously, you know, maybe bigger triple A's. I won't call them out by name, but I know of their policies because I've applied at these places. Most of the bigger AAAs do not allow that. In fact, anything that you make even off off hours uh, belongs to them. So yeah, I was in a really fortunate position to have such fair policies with that. All right, so we have a little bit of extra time, so let's give everyone a second question for this discussion. We'll start with Murphy's second question. What do you think are the best episodes you've recorded? Um, or like, which are your favorite? Which did you have the most fun recording? Someone new listening to this, what would you recommend them go start with? Any episodes that match any of those criteria? Just Man. Those, uh, yeah. Murphy, these are great questions. Okay, I you know what? When you ask that, I already know what my favorite episode I've ever recorded. And if I remember from the analytics, it did not perform well. But it was the first Halloween episode, I think, when I talked about Kojima and PT. And I did like I did some really stupid, like corny stuff with like voice effects and filters, but uh I like I like the Halloween season in general. I really like the story of the development of PT. I think it's really interesting. It's a really interesting project and it kind of shows you the shows you the kind of designer that I think Kojima is. That whole idea where like the person is behind you the whole time even if you if if you like pull up a debug or something and you can uh, like an editor or something and you can see the player character the the monster is behind you watching you the whole time and i don't know if that was just like a performance thing or or something like that um maybe it was just convenient to place the model behind the player but part of me really believes that it was somehow the design intent of like making you feel watched 
through the digital through the digital medium like you know that feeling when someone is behind you watching you and you're like the the hair on the back of your neck stands up and it's almost like they were trying to take that very human thing and see if it's replicated in a digital thing like if you are controlling a character and someone's watching your character do you feel the same and I don't know. I think that's really interesting. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. Plus, I had a lot of fun with it, just like with all the voice changing stuff. Uh, it's probably corny now looking back at it. But yeah, that's episode 18. That was the most fun I had recording an episode. I think if I were to give like a new person a recommendation on where they should start, it's funny because I can tell that most people start at episode one and they just listen sequentially, which was never what I intended. I always thought of it more like a, it's called the game dev field guide because it's based on the idea of a field guide where like, if you don't know what a field guide is, it's like a small book you would take with you out on an expedition or something like that. Maybe it's a field guide for plants and you're like, what is this plant that I have right here? And you would flip the page open to, you just pick a page and be like, Oh, it's this plant, right? Like each each page of the book has a entry about a different plant. And so the idea of the game the field guide would be that each episode is like an entry and you just pick the episode that is applicable to what you're doing right now. So you wouldn't listen to them necessarily sequentially. You'd be like, if I'm making a uh, FPS game, I'm going to go open the FPS episode. But I numbered them sequentially so people listen to them sequentially. Um, yeah, anyways, if so if I were to tell someone to start with an episode, I wouldn't say start at episode one. I think I'm just scrolling through all the episodes right now. I'm trying to find one on... I know I did an episode about how to actually finish games and like keeping your motivation throughout the whole project. Yeah, it's episode 49. I think if I were to pick one episode for an intermediate dev... Like where I where I see it go wrong for a lot of people, they might they learn to program, they learn to do the art, they learn to do lots of stuff, but they never learn to finish their projects um, because I think it's actually the hardest part, and that's where I would tell an intermediate person to start. Um, if that if I knew they already knew all the other kind of basics and stuff, I would say. Go check out episode 49 because I think it would help a lot. For beginners, I kind of feel like they should just start wherever their wherever their heart takes them, like whatever they're interested in. When you're when you're starting out, like it's kind of just about feeling all the different things that game dev has to offer and being attracted to the things that just call to you. And, and there's so much like two beginners past are going to look totally different because some person might be like, Oh, this topic's really interesting. And they start going in that direction. And then someone else goes in the other direction. And sooner or later you kind of learn all the basics. And then that's when you, you know, start to put things together. But yeah, when you're a beginner, I think you just have that fire to like learn all the things that really interest you. And I wouldn't want to get in the way of that of someone. I think they should just go to whatever interests them at first. Is that kind of how is that kind of how you learned game dev Murphy? Where did you kind of follow your heart, or did you learn it in a very like I'm gonna do programming then this or or how did how did it work for you? Well, 
I guess, I mean, to your episodes, actually, I, I do not listen sequentially. I hop around kind of to what looks interesting for, for what it's worth, but it's funny that people listen sequentially X, the numbering, which makes UX interesting. Um, but yeah, as far as how I've learned, um, I mean, I feel like I mean, my very first dip into game dev was really through the StarCraft campaign editor. Um, not really like recognizing it as game dev, but like that's essentially what it was. And actually, I'd say that even like got me into programming as like a career. But so I, I guess I have that background. So that was a good starting point. And yeah, and then I guess during the pandemic, just had free time, and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm actually going to do this. Try to get into game dev. And yeah, I, I started by like saying, okay, well, having some podcast or something to accompany this would be nice. And that's how I found the game dev field guide. And yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like. Um, I don't know if I listened to that episode that you're mentioning early on, but I, I do feel like you have like hammered home that idea of like finish things and, and do small projects and stuff. And so that was, yeah, the first thing I did was I participated in one of like February, 2021, I think game jam and just did a little project that I put out there. Um, and yeah, that just been trying to, iterate on that since then that um, first project you did was that the one with the um forest and you had to like find the thing for your daughter by going through the forest no that i think that was my second one the first one was make a maze it was called it was like a little oh puzzle game yeah yeah maze and, yeah my favorite game you've ever made actually was that forest one sorry not to do yeah you like that <laughs> I, I don't i almost good. don't want to spoil it for people but i do want to tell them can i tell them Sure, yeah, yeah, go ahead, yeah. Okay, so the game the game is like a short little story game almost, and your daughter's sick and you're her dad, and I think it's like a witch or something. Someone comes to tell you, you got to go get this thing from the forest, and so you go and you go through the maze and go to the forest, and you come back, and I, if I remember right, that part cures her. But the what you find out when you go through the maze and come back is that what the daughter needed was just some time with her father. And so if you don't go through the maze, but you just stay by your by your daughter's side and you just wait there and like don't really do anything, it also cures her and it's like another way to beat the game. And I thought, man, that is such a simple but so creative um, thing. And it's like, I talk about the golden rule, right? Like evoking the emotion. Um, it's like, uh, I don't know, it just makes you reflect about your own relationships and like are you putting in the quality time with people and how that can kind of cure people of being so-called sick I, I don't know it just really spoke to me um and that is that is my favorite like game jam game of yours that i've ever played one of my favorite of all time in the game dev field guide monthly game jams that, that's really awesome thank you yeah no, that, that's really cool um but yeah, yeah, the idea was like, yeah, but yeah, you're you're told to like you have to go save her, but like she tells you like no, just stay, just like stand next to me like three seconds. <laughs> it's like all you have to do is just make your player stay still next to her for three seconds, and you win. But like instead, you try to run off to the forest, and like the more you run, like the narrower your vision becomes. But like if you just stay still for two seconds, then you the, like your vision becomes bigger, so you can like see the whole maze and. Um, but yeah, the, the whole point being like the faster you go, like kind of the the more you're hindered. Um, Did you have that in mind? Like that was the kind of theme that was like the emotional theme of the game is like, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
yeah, I was thinking just like, how do you like, yeah, thinking about that, the, the golden rule and like, okay, how do you like really make the gameplay like reflect that? And like, I guess thinking about like how to really use games as like a medium that's unique in a way that you can't in art or movies or music or something, because like the player has to participate in it and like actively do something. So um, I think, yeah, that was how I ended up there. Um, also the the theme, which I don't remember what it was that. I don't um, remember either. We've done so many. Alex, do you have any, uh, how do like, how did you start learning or anything like that? Did you find yourself wandering on, I, I feel like I find I, I hear when people tell me about their beginner experiences, most people are like, I went to some YouTube tutorials or I got interested and I kind of just jumped from tutorial to tutorial about different topics or yeah, I guess I'm curious, like how did it, how did it go for you? And maybe do you listen to the game dev field guide sequentially by episode or do you jump around to topics that you like, or do you have a favorite episode that really stuck out to you? I did listen sequentially yeah because i think when i found the show maybe you were on episode 30 or something like that so i i listened to whatever the current ones were and then i was like oh i love this and then started from the beginning and just listened all the way through again yeah so that that was helpful i started during covid i think like a lot of people uh i was spending some time like homeschooling my older son and we decided that we would try and do some stuff in unity and kids are like, we'll be really honest with you. If something's like not looking right or not working right. (laughs) Very true. Um, So that was like a big motivator for me. I was like, Oh yeah, this really isn't right. I gotta, gotta fix it. You know, you can't like explain it away. Um, so yeah, we just learned a ton together and then I got totally obsessed with it. So I've just been learning on YouTube and stuff like that. Or I took some classes and stuff too. I don't mean to interrupt you, but uh, that's really true what you said about kids. If you want to know if your game is like actually good, have a, have a kid play it because they will not hold back. <laughs> They're going to tell you like if they don't like it pretty much right away. I've found that to be true with 100% of kids. Yeah, pretty much. And if you need like a cheap, easy unit test like, and you have a toddler around, like you hand them the controller and then they'll just break the game immediately. So that's... <laughs> That's another hot tip. <laughs> Maybe you should do a whole episode on exploiting exploiting children for video game labor. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't really like have more questions. I guess like maybe if you're gonna have more time to work on the show, like what's your what's your plan for for upcoming stuff? Can you say it on here or like is there? Um, seems like you're running out of beginner topics like what do you think is next for the show dude so you're right i am running out of beginner topics and i think in the future of the show there'll be more experimental episodes um more like you know genre study stuff or i might i might come back to and do part two of a few topics and stuff like that but the truth is i'm starting to even I, I like to only do episodes where like I at least know I don't know. I'm running to the end of my knowledge. Like I was saying, one episode is eight pages of script. So after we're on like episode eighty, I think. Um 
Don't make me do math live. What's eight times 80? Eight on, no. <laughs> 640? Yeah. 600, enough. 640 pages of, of writing about game development. Like, I don't know. I, I would ask anyone out there, like, take the thing that you know the most about and could you write 640 pages about it before you, like, ran out of stuff to say? I'm getting almost to the point where I'm running out of things to say. Uh, that being said, I definitely we're this close to episode 100, so I know I'm definitely going to get to episode 100. Um, and I do have plans for making more content uh, if that day ever comes when I'm like, I don't have anything else to say or I need to take some time to learn new things before I need to make more episodes of the Game Dev Field Guide specifically. But yes, I have plans for continuing to doing um, learning content for game development. There's some things that maybe are going to be a little bit more dynamic and a little bit more fun and interesting. And um, yeah, rest assured, I've got plenty of content ideas and uh, I don't know, creative stuff. But there is an end date I don't know when it is, and it's not going to be for a while, but I can foresee that one day I'm going to be out of things to say for the traditional style of Game Dev Field Guide episodes. And it's going to take me another, I don't know, five years to accumulate more knowledge before I can do more of them. Yeah, like I was saying, I've got plenty of other stuff that I hope to bridge the gap. I've announced some of, the sec I've announced some of it on the Secret Patron channel, so... I don't want to say it live yet because it's not 100% in, uh, like all the details aren't 100% worked out, but I'll tell you right now, Alex, but I'm going to cut it out of the episode, <laughs> but I'll, yeah, leave, tell me. I'll leave this part in to tease everyone. <laughs> yeah. So I think I said this in the Patreon thing, but, uh, there's going to be a game dev. The last question of the night that I actually want to ask you guys it could be a quick answer if you feel like it, or maybe it can be a long answer. Um, maybe you won't even know the answer because it's kind of a, I don't know, it's a deep answer, I think. But my question for you is, why do you do game development? Why do you do this thing that is extremely hard and it can be frustrating and um, it can take up all of your time? And we've seen the success rate, like, you know, most of us don't make any money doing it. Um, maybe some of us even barely get anyone to play the games, but there's a reason that we all do it. And I think everyone's reason is a little bit different. And I'm curious what your guys' reasons are. I guess we'll start with Murphy. Okay. Um, so, I mean, one aspect was, I think what we were just talking about with like, that it, it's an opportunity to like hone other skills and try different things, like learn how to write music, learn how to write stories, manage a project. Um, but besides that, I think it's it's the kind of the the goes back to the golden rule. Like I think there's something so cool about making something and then seeing somebody interact with it and like draw an emotion out of them. Um, like to actually like create something and then see it like influence a person. Um, so yeah, I, I guess you saying that like you remember that 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 silly little game jam game. Um, like yeah, that that's really I think the 
the greatest satisfaction is like seeing someone play it and having like a an impact um, is really cool. I guess then we'll pass it on to you, Alex. Um, why is it that you make games? Oh man, Murphy's answer was so good. Uh, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I don't know. I my answer is like way more selfish. Like I just like doing all the stuff that you get to do. Like I like programming and I like doing 3D modeling and uh, I even like using the Unity editor and like learning all those features and all that stuff. And it's just really satisfying to be able to do all that stuff. Like I feel like I'm using a lot of myself to do it and it feels like good to be able to do that. Um, and like I don't really feel qualified to like say what it's like to have people play the games or anything because I haven't really put that much stuff out. So I don't even know what that feedback is. Feedback loop is really like, you know, but yeah, just every, everything that I've learned so far, like I really like doing it. And, uh, and there's a lot there. Like, I feel like I could just kind of be into it for a long time and not like run out of stuff to learn. Yeah. I think my answer, I, I answered this question in, in session one and my answer was very similar on one hand, it's like, it's almost compulsive. Like the reason I make games is cause I've just been, I've been designing games ever since I was little. Like it, some of my oldest memories are just like coming up with the games that the kids play at the bus stop. Right. Like <laughs> I would just make up the rules on the fly and some of them were really dumb and they were always like, uh, my friends would, me and my friends would always win because I would just change the rules. So we'd always win, <laughs> but, um, it's something that I think I just, I just like doing it's, it's compulsive for me. And, um, you're right about, there's so much to learn. Like you never run out of things to learn. And I really like that aspect of like diving deep into a hobby and learning new things and, with game dev, it's like a never ending list. I'll, I, for the rest of my life, I'll be able to learn new things about game development. So in that way, it's, it's really comforting to me. It's, it's a good craft to pick, to like dedicate my life to, um, in that sense. As soon as I like have learned how to do something and do it a few times, like I'm just like not really interested in it anymore. And I just feel like there's so it's like so hard to make games and there's so much to learn. And like once you like I think you were saying earlier, like once you learn how to like do some passable amount of coding that makes a game appear like you still have to make it fun. And like that's like a whole nother thing to learn. And and like, you know, and then also make it like satisfying to like click the buttons and put the sound in and and make it look cool and like just all those things. Like there's so much there. Like, you could just keep you going forever. And I think that is going to do it for today's bonus episode. Thank you for listening to this absolute monster of an episode. I was too afraid to cut it down more because I felt like there was so much good discussion in here. I actually did cut out a lot of the discussion. We were still left with so much content. So, yeah, big thank you to the patrons for providing their time. And a big thank you to all of you who listen and support this show. Without the support that the show has gotten over the years, I don't know if we would still be going into our fifth year of GDFG. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. With that, I think I'm going to sign off. I have been Zachavelli. 
and all of the patrons and I are wishing you a very happy holidays. Happy holidays. Holidays. GDFG.